Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. By many accounts, the sea is sick. Overfishing, pollution, and global warming are crashing together to alter and destroy marine life around the world. Fish and where they swim are one measure of the change. Like refugees, they'll move to find places where they'll survive. Now it's time for humans to catch up and catch on. Also today, a diagnosis on climate and children's health. The New England Journal of Medicine makes the link explicit with a new study and with proven ways to help protect the youngest and most vulnerable among us. As always, we don't just look at the problem, we talk to the people with the answers, the solutions. Welcome to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. Within the last few days, a global conference on the world's oceans committed to protecting what lies beneath the waves after acknowledging the crisis at hand. Surface temperatures have climbed by one and a half degrees since the turn of the 20th century. But there are some places, for example, spots in the North Atlantic, where the water is warming more quickly than average. What on Earth producer Molly Siegel takes us there. Cape Cod juts out from the rest of the state of Massachusetts, kind of like a hook. The open part faces north. If you were to draw a line from the northernmost tip of the Cape to the southernmost point of Nova Scotia, it's about 380 kilometers. That's, as the crow flies, across the Gulf of Maine. Cape Cod gets that name from colonial settlers impressed by the abundance of cod. But it would not be an apt namesake today. Changes are hard on everybody, and they're hard on communities as well. And so Atlantic Cod presents, you know, sort of the cultural iconic challenges for New England. I meet John Hare in Woods Hole, a small community on the south of the Cape. It's sunny out, and he wears his sunglasses for most of our conversation. He's the director of the Northeast Fisheries Science Centre, part of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, that monitors fish stocks in the Northeast. Um, So we're walking uh, sort of along Albatross Street. Um, There are a number of scientific uh, organizations here in Woods Hole. There's NOAA Fisheries, Marine Biological Laboratory, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, the United States Geological Survey have a big lab And here. the list goes on. Center. So it's a very vibrant place to be a scientist, um, despite it looking like a quiet New England town. A quiet New England town with shingle and clapboard houses. And at this time of year, alive with lush green yards, flowers, and chirping birds, Much of the community is here only part-time. Second homes now start at millions of dollars. When Hare was a kid, living in upstate New York, his family would visit Martha's Vineyard, 
a short ferry ride away from where we are in Woods Hole, the southernmost point of Cape Cod. And we'd load up in the station wagon and drive down, get over to the vineyard, spend two weeks, and then drive back and end up back in upstate New York. So that's where I kind of got my love for the ocean. And the way I like to say it is that, you know, I always wanted to work here, and the sixth time was the charm. So I had, I had applied for five other jobs here and not gotten them, but the sixth one I got. you got to just keep trying. His tenacity paid off. He now leads a team that monitors fish in the North Atlantic from Cape Hatteras in North Carolina up through the Gulf of Maine, which meets the southern tip of Nova Scotia. This is a hot spot for ocean warming. This part of the Atlantic, the Northwest Atlantic, is changing very rapidly, and there are sort of three factors. Um, one is just the, you know, the ocean is warming. Um, the second is the location of the Gulf Stream, which is the warm current coming up from the tropics, is pushing further north. Um, So that's pushing warm water into areas that were once cold. Um, And then the third one is the the circulation, the northern circulation is decreasing. So you've got less cold water coming into the region. So we see this just really rapid warming here in the northeast because of this sort of trifecta. That is what NOAA Fisheries data has shown. It began monitoring the area in 1963 for water temperature, ocean salinity, and fish. So we've been collecting uh, scientific surveys for almost 60 years, and so we can look at sort of long-term changes in fish distributions. Uh, Many fish populations are changing their distribution. The dominant pattern is that moving sort of towards the northeast, towards the pole, and then also moving into deeper water. Um, and the, the data supports that the fish are tracking their preferred temperature. Tracking their preferred temperature. Fish have a threshold of temperatures in which they can live, depending on the species and age. What they prefer is usually in the middle of that range. And as their home gets warmer, they look to find those conditions elsewhere to survive. Usually that's north, but in some cases it's not. Hair gives me another way to think about this. Think of it as an inverted mountain range. You've got all these very deep uh, basins, which if you invert it, are like mountaintops. Water that's cooler as it gets deeper. Hiking a mountain, it might be snowing at the top, but not at the bottom. In the Gulf of Maine, some of those inverted mountaintops, or deep, colder pockets of water, mean some fish are moving southwest, where it's warming less quickly. But ultimately, the fish do have one thing in common, trying to find somewhere suitable to live as their habitat starts to change. And people who fish in the North Atlantic are tracking those changes closely. Checking size. Making a living at sea has many challenges, but out there on the water with the open ocean surrounding you? (laughs) Well, I don't think I could do it justice. So I'm Eric Hess. I'm a commercial fisherman from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. I fished for 30 years for codfish and haddock, and also bluefin tuna in the summer times. Hess mostly fishes out of Chatham, about an hour and a half drive east of Woods Hole. His family didn't fish, but growing up on the Cape, he was introduced to it. And uh, really fell in love with uh, the excitement of bluefin tuna fishing. Uh, I, I'm a harpooner. Uh, the harpoon fishery is a, an ancient 
hand thrown only fishery uh, that's very selective in you know the size of fish we keep and uh, so I, I you know that there's a great deal of adrenaline there it's kind of like hunting uh, we do it in the summer months and the fishery has been compressed to basically a two-month fishery in June and July so we're right in the middle of it right now fortunately it's a windy day out there so we're not fishing. To me Hess looks like he'd be equally at home on a sailboat as a fishing vessel. He looks tanned from spending his days outside He's in his late 50s now, but he smiles a lot more than most people do near the end of their careers. He started harpooning bluefin tuna in 1984. I've been telling people that June is the new July. Here, Hess is not talking about the tourism season, but harvesting tuna. Normally it doesn't take off until July, but this year, you know, we went out our first trip in June and we saw several, you know, nice schools of fish that normally we, we really don't even see till the middle of June let alone establish any solid catch history until towards the end of the month. So things are definitely starting off sooner. An earlier start for some species. Then there are the quantities. Off the Cape, some fish are showing up in greater numbers than they used to. John Hare with NOAA Fisheries gives me an example. Black sea bass. And when I was a kid, you know, fishing here around Cape Cod, I can remember one summer of my childhood catching one black sea bass and being really excited about it and taking it to the fish market and everyone was excited. Now, you know, after, you know, 40 years, um, you can't not catch a black sea bass around here. I think it's one of the most abundant species in the area and that's sort of because climate change has warmed, they've tracked their preferred temperature and their productivity has increased. As the ocean warms, black sea bass are having more babies. They're abundant in the south, and they're moving north, expanding where they live, not shifting altogether. And that has the fish caught up in bureaucracy. Off of Cape Cod, trawling vessels are catching black sea bass. But it doesn't mean they can land it, bring it to a port and sell it. That's because the quotas, which make up the total amount of a fish species that can be caught, are allocated to different states. So North Carolina can catch so much, Maryland can catch so much, New Jersey can catch so much. And those allocations are largely based on fish distributions in sort of the mid-80s. Fast forward 30 years, black sea bass are now much further north than they were. So you can catch black sea bass in Connecticut in Rhode Island, in Massachusetts, but the state doesn't have the quota. So you have fishermen who are able to catch a fish, um, but fisheries management is sort of really limiting what they can land. And that creates a lot of tension because there are a lot of black sea bass. The the population has expanded and grown, um, but there are a number of fishermen who don't have access to that population. So to give some black sea bass to Massachusetts, you'd actually have to take it away from states further south that already are legally entitled to fish it. So it's created this tension in the fisheries management system whereby we, I think everyone recognizes that the allocations are not working, but to change the allocations, you have to take something away from somebody and give it to somebody else, which is a very hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to do in an industry that's long-faced challenges. I meet Tracy Sylvester on a windy day in Woods Hole. 
She moved back to Cape Cod early in the pandemic after spending years away. I grew up on Cape Cod, but I've been living and fishing up in Sitka, Alaska for 15 years. I own a fishing boat up there with my partner, and we fish for wild salmon, halibut, black cod out of Sitka and Port Alexander, Alaska. To me, Sylvester looks the part of Cape Cod. She's wearing a colorful, patterned jumpsuit, and you could mistake her for someone on vacation, heading to the beach, but she calls Massachusetts home, at least part of the time. I came back from Alaska thinking I want to sell some Alaskan fish in the winters, keep fishing in the summers. Returning to the Cape, she and her partner opened up a store called the Fisherman's Pantry. Their idea was to bring Alaskan fish to Massachusetts. So flash freezing it, vacuum sealing it, stabilizes it and basically stops the clock right at the dock on the fish. So we don't um, worry about spoilage as we're moving it around. And it really helps to reduce waste to freeze it. Um, almost, it's somewhere around 50% of fish that goes to fresh market goes to waste before it gets eaten. So as a fisherman, that's really heartbreaking when you're the one actually taking the fish's life and you're a conservation-minded fisherman who doesn't want to take more than they have to because they want to keep fishing and they want it for their, the future generations to be able to have this wild, amazing, nutrient-dense food resource. Not caught off the dock in Cape Cod, but that can be said of a lot of other fish, too. If you order cod at a restaurant in Massachusetts, what arrives on your plate could be from Iceland. It wasn't always like that, though. Fisherman Eric Hess. Well, one of the biggest changes um, is the decline of our traditional fishery for cod and haddock. It's known as the New England groundfish fishery because there are a number of other species that are caught. But for boats like mine that have used bottom longline gear, uh, cod and haddock are, are the target species and generally comprise, you know, 95% of the catch. But he remembers when cod was still a decent way to make a living. When I started out, uh, an ounce of work was, you know, at least an ounce of return. The cod fishery back in the 90s, even though people then were saying it's, it's under stress, was a, a pretty solid way to make a living here on Cape Cod. As cod stocks declined, he felt the toll. And that was really, that was a struggle, I guess, to, to try to convince yourself that you weren't a horrible fisherman or a bad person. It's just the stocks weren't there and, the, and you had to transition. Hess says climate change is complicating the story for cod. They're affected by the warming water. There's been an overfishing crisis in New England. And what we see now is that finally we're getting ahead of it with the management. Uh, will the ecosystem allow enough resilience in the health of the fish so that they can rebound. I'm not here to say that I'm the victim of climate change, but I think we've put ourselves in a bad position with poor fisheries management and now stocks that are severely depressed trying to come back in, a, in an arena where basically they've, the goalposts have moved and the whole field is different. You know, the, it's warmer. The, the makeup of forage species is different. It's a question mark whether these stocks can actually uh, return. With fewer cod, spiny dogfish moved in. They're a small shark up to about a meter long with grayish bodies and a white underside. You know, that's one of the challenges for cod as they're allowed to come back. Can they push out the dogfish, which are 
extremely you know efficient and uh, are just are in such great numbers here. So we've we've actually fished on them. Most of the dogfish are exported to Europe, and we've tried extensively uh, to market them here in New England. And people just I don't know they they want that white flaky white fish from cod and haddock, and they just haven't you know embraced the idea of you know, using a species that is abundant here and fresh and just doesn't have the same kind of flesh as a, as a flaky white cod. But even if cod are able to make a comeback, Hess has another worry. They don't, you know, they, they don't recognize international boundaries. So if it's too hot, they can swim over the Hague line and go to Canada, which is a great thing for Canadian fishermen, of course. Fishermen like Alain Dontremont the president of Scotia Harvest in Digby, Nova Scotia. It'd be nice to get some black sea bass at the same abundance that we have dogfish. <laughs> then, then we would have some very successful trips. Dontremont is 38 years old now and remembers his first paid gig at age 11. I asked Dad for money one day and, and he told me to get in the truck. I thought that meant that there was money in the truck and instead we went to the wharf and I got paid for the first day at work. So. As the ocean warms, Dontremont does have his eye on other potential opportunities. Trawling for haddock and redfish, other species do show up. Dogfish, like he mentioned earlier, but also... Yeah, the main one would be the black-bellied rosefish. Uh, black-bellied rosefish is, is something that we've caught on and off since the late 80s. Um, but now you pretty much can't make a trip without catching some. It's just right now we're not legally allowed to retain them uh, because they're not listed in the fisheries regs. So dogfish, black belly rosefish, and anything else there isn't a commercial opportunity for becomes bycatch. It's thrown away. But Dontremont wants the regulations to change to make it legal to bring this type of bycatch in because he wants to learn more about these fish. The Department of Fisheries and Oceans does surveys, but Dontremont says it's just a small snapshot of what's out there. He wants DFO to act more quickly, to invest more in the problem, monitor climate change, and figure out how to adapt the commercial fisheries to match what's out there and what's on its way in. I, I feel like we are struggling to keep up now, and we're not able to bring in the climate change changes, the productivity changes that we've seen. I totally understand the frustration because we kind of have some of the same frustrations too as scientists that we don't know everything. We haven't answered all the questions and there's, you know, there needs to be more serious dedication given to uh, these big ecosystem-based management approaches and that needs data and that needs resources associated with that. Helen Gurney-Smith is a research scientist with DFO. She's based in St. Andrews, New Brunswick. She's also an author on the most recent report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. She worries that without enough science, Canada could make the wrong decisions about what and how we fish. I mean, fisheries management is considered one of the key great adaptation options for climate-associated uh, fisheries management. But in a situation where you don't have enough data about a species, then it means that you can be making your assessment based on uh, limited assumptions. And so that's where you can inadvertently, you know, uh, end up with a situation where you haven't taken into account all the different things that are needed to, you know, promote a resilient um, fishery stock. 
The focus of her science for DFO is to test how climate change will affect two key commercial fisheries, scallops and lobster. For the lobster work that we do actually in the lab, so we're exposing lobsters to higher temperatures that we think will be happening in the Bay of Fundy within the you know, next 70 years. And we're also exposing them to ocean acidification too. So that's a another uh, climate stressor, um, which is the decrease of pH in the oceans. And what we're looking at is how that affects lobster pop, uh, reproduction and kind of population stability. Her research models conditions in the Bay of Fundy between New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. It's still ongoing, but for the moment. Uh, with regards to lobsters, you know, we're seeing increased amounts of uh, lobster catches um, in the Atlantic region. But it's only a success story until it's not. We can adapt to a point. But the root problem, the greenhouse gas emissions, need to be addressed to curb global warming. You only have to look to our New England neighbors, south of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, to see how this has played out. John Hare with NOAA Fisheries says they have already seen economic fallout from the changes to lobster. Where lobster fishing off of Cape Cod used to be lucrative, that opportunity has shifted into Maine. But as the lobster declined, people had another idea. Some, some members of the fishery made a transition to Jonah crab. Um, so historically, Jonah crab showed up in the lobster fishery, but they were just discarded. Um, then when sort of lobster population decreased, uh, they started to develop a market for Jonah crab. And now there is a market for Jonah crab. Switching from lobster to Jonah crab. It is possible to market new seafood and to adapt. For Eric Hess, though, adapting has meant something else. He uses his trawling gear to help out research teams like NOAA Fisheries. He gets paid to help with surveys in parts of the Northwest Atlantic that are new to him. That's one of the great things about this, this research with uh, NOAA, that it's taken us to places that we normally wouldn't fish, and we've tried different depths and different kinds of bottoms than we normally look for. So we've caught some things that, you know, actually, I'd, I had never seen a golden tile fish before. And we started to catch those. They look like a tropical fish. They're a big silvery fish with a bright yellow stripe and, you know, a black eye patch. It looks like something you'd see in the tropical aquarium. And that got Hess thinking. Could the regulations change if there are more tile fish? So I poked around and looked into the regulations and saw that it was a quota-based fishery held primarily by people from Maryland and, and, you know, Rhode Island and that fished on that continental shelf edge. Nobody was, was fishing for them up there. So it's not something you could go and just make a commercial fishery out of. You'd have to source quota from somewhere and possibly have a commercial permit. So... That's, a, that's one example, for sure, of, of things that I've seen that I might be able to fish for, that currently there's no regulatory framework. Regulations are slow to change. But fish, and the people who fish them, they move more quickly. At her shop, Tracy Sylvester works with other fishermen on Cape Cod. She wants to help them make their catch go further. A creative solution when you're stuck working with the rules you have. Rather than worrying about selling their catch fresh, Sylvester says flash freezing it can extend the life. 
that cuts down on waste, and it allows fishermen to make more money off of their product. And here on Cape Cod, that can be a little bit of a hard sell because people expect that they're coming here and they're going to eat fresh fish, but they don't understand that most of the fish in the case is not local and it's not really fresh. Um, so we're trying to bring some transparency to that. And another reason why fishermen want to freeze their catch at the dock is it gives them the ability to direct market it. Like you need a whole distribution network to move fresh fish around fast enough so that you can get it to the people before it goes bad. Whereas frozen, you can ship it more efficiently. You can ship it in bulk, you can ship it slow, and you don't have that spoilage during that process. And that gives the power back to the fishermen so they can sell their fish directly because there's no rush, really. And then there's also frozen products like chowders or fish cakes. Another way to better use up all that fish that doesn't have an immediate buyer. People coming into her shop on vacation may not be super keen to check climate change, but Sylvester tries to keep things positive. They don't kind of don't want to think about climate change when they're here as tourists, but food is one way that we can show them solutions. Look, these are fishermen working together. This is our community and it, it's empowering. For What on Earth, I'm Molly Siegel. And just a note, we checked with DFO about the concerns that Alain D'Entremont shared. It said warming oceans means it is rethinking the approach to how it decides which species to protect where. And it added the department is working with its U.S. counterpart to understand, track, and anticipate the movement of sea life. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You are listening to What on Earth here on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM, on demand at CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Laura Lynch. Canada and the other G7 nations are backtracking on a commitment they made at the COP26 summit in Glasgow. Instead of following through on a pledge to end financing of international fossil fuel projects by the end of the year, they've carved out an exception. It's temporary, they say and it would allow for projects that will help to bridge energy shortages caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But climate change activists are voicing disappointment. If you want to learn more about Canada's climate commitments at COP26, head to our website, cbc.ca slash earth. You'll find the archive of all of our episodes there, all 104 episodes, I should add, and yep, if you do the math, this week marks our second birthday. Happy birthday to us. The New England Journal of Medicine is known as one of the most prestigious medical journals in the world, and now it's using some of that influence in the fight against climate change. Editor Karen Solomon says the journal's editors feel the weight of the task ahead. The IPCC report really uh, reminding us how concerning 
things are right now um, with the most recent report saying that greenhouse gas emissions really have to begin to fall in the next three years in order uh, for people to avoid the most devastating consequences of climate change. And so I think recognizing that and at the same time recognizing that there's really been very little progress on the part of the U.S. government or many other governments to address this, we really felt that uh, it was important to redouble our efforts in this regard. As part of those efforts, the journal has launched a series focusing on climate change and public health. The first study has just been published, and it tackles the impact of fossil fuel emissions on children. Kari Nadeau is one of the co-authors. Nadeau is a pediatrician and a professor at Stanford University in California. We reached her in Washington, D.C. on the National Mall. Hello there. Hi, nice to meet you. You too. What are you doing in Washington? I'm in Washington right now. I'm outside the Capitol building, and I just spoke to some of our senators uh, and their staff about climate change and health and how we can work better on mitigation and adaptation plans to climate change to be able to improve people's health. Did you get the impression they were really listening? I did get the impression (laughs) that they were really listening, and that gave me a lot of hope and, importantly, a lot of promise that there'll be policies that are moving through Congress to be able to effectively enact change. And I'm an optimistic person, but I'm also a realistic person. So I know that it takes communication and talking to others to be able to affect change. So that's why I'm here in person in DC, making sure that we can help the planet. Now you are a pediatrician. What are you seeing in your young patients that is connected to climate change? I'm seeing a lot in the children and the families that I take care of. For example, in California, over the last 10 years, we've had a significant increase in wildfire smoke, such that during certain times of the year, over 100 days of the year is covered in smoke in some places in California. So the children coming into my clinic have terrible asthma. They also have blood pressure changes. There are things going on, for example, in the way that their bodies are growing that are affected by wildfire smoke. So that worries me. Yeah, I was going to ask you, why are children especially vulnerable to this kind of thing? Well, you know, as humans, we breathe in about a pool's worth of air in every day. And we do that because we need air to breathe. And children increase that air intake even more so because they metabolize things faster. And secondly, their lungs are growing. And so children that are of much higher risk for the effects of wildfire smoke than necessarily other ages, but all ages are at risk, children even more so because of those two major reasons. Are there some children that are more vulnerable than others? Yes. What we've seen across the state is children that are born to communities that are vulnerable, children of color, children that don't have the same native language as, for example, wherever they live. They are the ones that unfortunately pay the biggest cost from wildfire smoke compared to other children. So we really need to focus on vulnerable communities, and especially children that already have asthma or that already have conditions that um, affect their lungs. They are at much higher risk for having the bad effects of wildfire smoke. Why are those communities more affected? I think that's one of the things we really wanted to point out in the article, too, is because, as you can imagine, people that 
have to deal with climate change and with the warming of the planet, with droughts, with heat stress, with wildfires, with floods. When communities of color that don't have good healthcare access, when they all already have stress that are occurring every day in their lives due to food insecurity, when you, on top of all that, add heat stress, add a wildfire smoke, or add a flood, it just compounds and adds to the further issues around their healthcare. So it's a lot of mixed effects that are going on in any one individual, but that's why those communities are very much vulnerable to the bad effects of climate change and that I'm seeing we need to be getting ahead of that and help proactively to help people manage these issues and to try to solve them. So everything that you're talking about, all of these impacts, will these effects become worse on children as time goes on? That's one of the things that needs to be studied. People have been looking at long-term consequences of climate change. In fact, the data now show that every child on our planet around the whole globe will be affected by one climate change event in their lifetime, but mostly the children will be affected by more than one. And so with that, there are long-term consequences. We've been seeing in California, for example, if someone is affected by wildfire smoke more than one time, you can start to see that accumulate in their immune system or in their DNA. And so we're watching that, and that's going to be really important to study because, as you could imagine, the multiple hits of dealing with evacuations, dealing with the stress, dealing with anxiety, seeing that your house is burned down, that all adds up. And then add to that the health effects of asthma and the complications that maybe their families have for heart attacks or stroke that their grandparents might have. That affects children, uh, both directly and indirectly. So that needs to be studied more, but we're already seeing the consequences in many parts of the world around the longitudinal effects of climate change. I'm wondering if there's any patients of yours that, who come to mind when, you, when you're talking about or thinking about this kind of thing. I want to give a story that I recently worked with um, a 40-year-old single mom who lived close to a highway. Um, she also was in an area where there was wildfire smoke. And so she didn't have family in the area to go to when there needed to be a forced evacuation due to a wildfire. So she actually had to stay in her home. She has five kids, two of whom have terrible asthma. And so when we tried to give her the evacuation notice and give her documents, she's mostly Spanish speaking. So she, number one, didn't understand what we were providing to her as public health facing documents. In addition, we were trying to give her contacts with a, a smartphone device, for example, to try to help her know whether or not it was unsafe for her children to still be in the home. And unfortunately, she didn't have a smartphone. So these really come uh, to mind when we are dealing face central and face forward for trying to solve things on an individual level. So this poor mom came to me two days after the wildfire has started and asthma was really running havoc in her family. I started to talk about filters for her home because she couldn't evacuate. We were talking about what type of masks to wear for her children and for herself and to protect the children that did not have asthma. And unfortunately, she didn't have the money to be able to afford filters or to afford masks for her children. This is not just a single story. This is very common among populations. And so what we did together as doctors and with the community, we were able to get her 
free filters brought to her home and then she put them into her home and then the asthma decreased quite dramatically within one day so that her children were feeling better but they had to stay inside but unfortunately they didn't have an air conditioner and so then the heat rose because there was wildfire smoke it was very hot in the house so these types of things are manageable but they have to be done really closely and in connection with families so that when we're giving directions to them that we follow up and that we understand from their point of view what are their issues what can they and can they not do what things from a public health perspective can we provide to them as documents to help them manage these issues around climate change i'm just giving you one example now luckily that mom and her five children are much better now but they really had to endure some pretty uh awful conditions with the wildfire smoke and the heat recently i'm glad the family is much better now but you spoke about heat there i just want to pick up on that and ask you how it affects your patients more broadly the heat is an incredible stress event there's a point in which it's just too hot to survive that we cannot sweat enough to be able to uh, compensate for the heat. And that's especially true in children because children have higher metabolism. That's also true for women who are pregnant. And so we talk about that in the article because heat stress is a real thing. Uh, We unfortunately, throughout even the news, we're hearing about people dying of heat stress all the time. So we have to think about setting up cooling rooms really being prepared for the public health issues around heat stress. But on an individual level, for example, families, and what I see in my clinic, um, a lot of people can't deal with the hot uh, and the humidity, as well as people that are occupational workers. And um, there are kids that have to move alongside their family members and working outside. And so we really have to focus as doctors to help provide our patients with information. And any healthcare worker should know that there are cooling rooms, there are now documents you can find online for how to best reduce uh, the heat, like going into a shaded area, making sure you can find a cool room, not going outside and exercising in uh, 80 or 90 degree Fahrenheit weather. So. A lot of these things can be changed on the individual level and people can start practicing that now because heat stress and heat related issues around health is real and people can collapse and they don't necessarily know that they're gonna collapse ahead of time. So especially in children, they need to be well hydrated, stay in the shade, don't go out in the sun and in the heat if you can avoid it. It's really important to be very careful with heat. You're talking now about mitigation, adaptation to these kinds of things. Um, You talked about individual actions, a little bit about community-level actions. What other actions should be taken on a federal level? Well, I think as our two countries, the U.S. and Canada, uh, deal with this, as well as many other countries around the world, I am very hopeful that we can make stringent regulations around renewable energy sources for both of our countries and for on the global side the eu has put in much more strict regulations around uh, diesel exhaust emissions and so i'm hoping that with new renewable energy sources that on the federal level we can really try to decrease carbon dioxide emissions to reduce climate change and to reduce this increase in temperature around the world on the adaptation level i think that our federal governments can work more towards adaptation plans that are consistent and that are well communicated throughout the land. 
So these adaptation plans need to be rolled in, for example, wildfires or flooding or heat stress, and so that we can get consistent communication that makes sense, that's based on science, and that really help communities and individuals and citizens adapt to these climate change events because they're coming, they're here, and we need to have consistent ways to communicate that. So that's what I would hope on a federal level, both mitigation and adaptation uh, are done consistently and effectively. Let's get back to the, the source of, of the study or where it was published, medical journals. that Typically, they focused on, on things like studies of treatments, drugs, procedures, testing, and rarely have we seen mentions of climate change. You've kind of answered this already, but why is it critical for these kinds of publications to contribute to the climate conversation? I think it's absolutely critical and it's crucial uh, on one side because we need to get the message out to people like healthcare workers for which our whole mantra is to do no harm and our whole mantra is to take care of people and to be advocates for people and their health. And like I said, health is very connected with the health of our planet. So climate change is part of what we do every day, whether or not we realize it or not, because we need to make sure that our patients and our families stay healthy. So journals like the New England Journal are taking the stand and other journals are as well to be able to talk about climate change and health. And this needs to be part of the conversation that we have every day. I'm so grateful that Dr. Pereira, who's the lead author on this, who works out of Columbia, she's a professor and she started a lot of the work on air pollution in children and really has led the way to our understanding. So I think as more and more journals publish all of the weighted evidence that is clearly there, there is no doubt that climate change and health are connected. And so I'm grateful for the New England Journal, and now we need to move that forward to make policy changes that will, in the end, help all of our health continue. I want to get a little personal with you. You, you are a mother yourself. I'm wondering what responsibility you feel to do the work you do. I absolutely feel compelled as a mom, as a pediatrician, as a researcher. I feel every day that I hear about something horribly um, that's happened due to climate change. I, I'm inspired more to make sure that we can do something now. We have to leave the planet better than what we uh, came into it as. And for me, climate change and pollution is critical. So I feel as a mother, I want to give back to my kids in so many ways and make sure that the world is safer for them. Um, and when I am a mom and wanting to make sure that the world's safer, part of that and what's instrumental to that to give them a future is a future that does not involve climate change events that affect their health. And that's what compels me to move forward. Kari Nado, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate being on the show. Solar, of course, is one of the renewable sources of energy that can help Canada cut its emissions. According to the Canadian Renewable Energy Association, there are around 48,000 solar energy installations across the country. Roughly 4,500 of those are in Nova Scotia. That interest in solar has created some friction between the provincial utility, Nova Scotia Power, and its solar customers. Earlier this year, the utility tried to charge those customers an additional fee for using the power company's grid, much to the chagrin of homeowners like Trevor Brown. 
Oh, my, my heart just sank. You know, all, all of our uh, plans have been, uh, I would say, almost completely destroyed over that. You know, the plans to have a, a, a greener home and to, uh, you know, uh, have less of an impact on the environment. And it's it's crazy. It's crazy what they're trying to do. It makes me question the uh, the motivation behind Nova Scotia Power and why, why are they trying to take money out of people's pockets, you know, like, I still feel that solar panels are the way to go and it's a good way to green green your home and and not impact the environment. I have no doubt that we made the right decision signing a contract for solar. I think it'll it'll definitely discourage people from uh, going into solar. Dave Brushett's nonprofit association, Solar Nova Scotia, fought successfully to get those fees removed for all solar customers. And Dave joins me now. Hello. Hi, Laura. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Tell me about this friction. What happened? Yeah, so the solar industry in Nova Scotia has been growing for many years now. Um, Earlier this year, there was a crisis moment in the industry. Uh, Nova Scotia Power submitted its general rate application to the Nova Scotia Utility and Review Board. And buried within this 1,800-page document was a proposed system access charge that would charge the average homeowner about $1,000 per year who had a solar installation. Wow, that's a lot of money. (laughs) It's a lot of money, and and it would over double the payback period for a homeowner's investment in their solar system. Right. So it really threatened to stop all solar installations in the province. And what was really bad about the, the proposal was that it was retroactively effective, So even though it would ultimately be the Utility and Review Board's decision on whether or not to accept this proposal, nobody could move forward with solar with any degree of certainty in the meantime because they risked having to pay this in the future. So it had a a really chilling effect on the industry. Many installations were being cancelled. Many installers faced a very uncertain future with, you know, possibility of layoffs going forward. And it was very much at odds with plans from the federal, provincial, and municipal governments to mitigate climate change. And so the industry really kind of came together, and, and we worked closely with the industry to When you say the industry, this. you mean the solar industry, not not the utility industry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, like the, our, our corporate members, who are mostly small businesses and solar installers, uh, really worked closely with us to push back against this proposal. Uh, we raised over $35,000 through a GoFundMe campaign to hire legal support uh, to fight this with the UARB. What is the UARB? The Nova Scotia Utility and Review Board. Okay, so so what did the province do then, or what did the, the board do? So we didn't have time for the Nova Scotia Utility and Review Board to make a decision on this proposal, because that would take up to a year to happen. And in the meantime, the, the industry would be devastated we pushed the province to step in and the province ultimately stepped in and said that they're they're not going to allow this system access charge to move forward and we worked with them to create new legislation uh, that would prevent the system access charge from from being imposed and also provide new oversight to nova scotia power to increase the size of solar installations that were allowable and to make solar as of right for Nova Scotians. And that, that legislation was passed in April. So you took this, this and it became an opportunity for you to actually gain more ground. But let's just go back to what uh, Nova Scotia Power said was the reason for this. 
Uh, So Nova Scotia Power, or NSP, said in its application to the Provincial Utility Board that solar customers benefit from using the grid, but at the same time, they don't pay for the infrastructure. So um, we talked to the company. It said in the statement that this is an issue of fairness. What's your response to that rationale? You know, Nova Scotia Power is in the business of building infrastructure and selling electricity. And, And as more homeowners install their own solar systems and produce their own electricity, this is going to have the effect of lowering the rate base of Nova Scotia Power. And they're going to be having to pay off their infrastructure with less overall rate base. Um, So it it is a challenge for them, and they do need to provide uh, backup power for solar customers. Um, Right, for when when the solar's not there. So, I mean, it is costing them money, so... Why shouldn't they be getting some money back to ensure they can do maintenance, that they can build infrastructure? This is a struggle that's going to be, it's going to happen. You know, this is a, a utility model that's been around for over a century. And, and with rapidly changing technology and the cost of solar coming down, more and more homeowners are going to be wanting to go solar. We feel, and I think a lot of Nova Scotians feel, that, that homeowners should have the right to produce their own power. You know, the same rationale could be said if if a homeowner installs a heat pump, they're buying less electricity. And so they're not helping as much to pay off for the infrastructure. Right. So what what what's the answer then? Yeah. So utilities are going to have to evolve and adapt to a rapidly changing electricity system. Um, Homeowners are shifting to EVs and battery storage is going to be much more common. Um, and so this is going to be a real challenge for utilities that, you know, in, in the past have been very slow to move, uh, very conservative with decades-long planning horizons. So we need the utility to work closely with stakeholders and have everybody at the table. We're going to have to figure out how, how this is going to work. And what, um, and what, what do you say? Have you, have you got an answer for this or is it something that you're still searching for yourself? I, th- I think I think that's the million dollar question. Like like I, I don't have any particular answer, but um, you know the utility has a fiduciary duty to their shareholders, and that's not necessarily always going to be al- aligned with what's best for you know Nova Scotians and Canadians. In the same statement, Nova Scotia Power also said it's committed to working with government, the renewables industry, and customers to reach Nova Scotia's goals of eighty percent of renewables by twenty thirty. And it says solar energy will help the province reach that goal. Do you think that's sufficient? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a very ambitious goal. They, they want to be completely off coal by 2030. And we're happy to work with them and be in better communication with them to figure out how this will get done. Whether it's possible remains to be seen. Um, but we believe that solar is a big part of the solution. And so we would like to see Nova Scotia Power embrace solar and, and help enable it to be part of the solution. Do you want Nova Scotia Power to, to run the solar industry then? I don't want Nova Scotia Power to run the solar industry, but certainly Nova Scotia Power has a big role to play in meeting the climate goals that have been set out by government. And they're going to need to play a leadership role in this. And we need to make sure that the solar industry is at the table to really advocate on behalf of solar. I don't mean to cast a shadow over the conversation, but Nova Scotia has more rainy and more foggy days than provinces like Saskatchewan or Alberta. So what is the actual potential for solar in the next few years? So solar has become very popular in Nova Scotia, 
and, and the economics of it make a lot of sense here because we have um, relatively expensive electricity and we have good rebates and financing options for homeowners. But you're right that the sun doesn't always shine and the utility is going to have to be there to provide backup power. Something like battery storage could be a really good part of the solution. So solar and storage has the potential to help offset some of the peak load of the utility in the winter and also to help homeowners store more more of the energy that they're producing. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, because if you look ahead to 2050, when Canada is supposed to be net zero, what role do you think households and commercial users could play as energy suppliers? Yeah, so in the future, uh, we believe that it'll be much more common for homeowners to be producing their own electricity with solar. You know, we're even seeing in the future, beyond solar panels, building materials that can produce solar, such as siding and windows. It's going to be more likely that homeowners will have an EV in the future and battery storage. And so these systems will all have to interact with the grid, and it's going to be a challenge but the utility is going to have to manage these energy flows and work with all the different stakeholders to uh, ensure that the system meets its full potential. All right. Dave Brushett, thank you so much for your time. Great. Thank you very much. We are well into growing season now, and farmers across Canada are out in their fields tending their crops. Climate change is making conditions more unpredictable, and it's increasing the risk of crop failure. Ontario farmer Rav Singh says it's also having a physical impact on farmers and farm workers. It's not uncommon now for people to be working out in the field for multiple days in a row during a heat wave for seven to nine hours with temperatures above 35, 40 um, and nighttime temperatures maybe not even dipping below 30 when nighttime temperatures for farmers are really important because that's the time of the day where our bodies cool down, but we're losing that. And that's a lot of stress to put on somebody's body. That's Rav Singh in Caledon, Ontario. Agriculture is on the front lines of climate change, but the industry is also a source of emissions. And that's why a coalition of Canadian farmers is pushing the federal government to help the industry switch to more climate-friendly practices. We'll hear from them next week. Finally, the United States Supreme Court just dealt a blow to President Joe Biden's plans to cut back on the country's emissions. The ruling may have a big impact not just on the U.S. and its ability to prevent the worst effects of climate change, It may also have a knock-on effect on Canada and the world, especially less developed, more vulnerable nations that are already bearing the brunt of a warming planet. Let us know what you think of the ruling and what should be done. Email us, earth at cbc.ca, or tweet us at cbcwhatonearth, or me at Laura Lynch, CBC. And that brings us to the end of our program this week. What on Earth was put together this week by associate producer Danielle Piper and producers Fliss McGregor, Rachel Sanders, and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer and our senior producer is Monisha Janakaram. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.